Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for this little fellowship that is so precious to me and to so many and has been for so many years. I come here every Sunday, Father, just with that attitude of thankfulness, aware of just how precious this is, how much we would miss it if it were not here. So easily, Father, we overlook what we have, looking for what we don't have. But, Father, what we do have and what we are thankful for is the opportunity to study, to know, to understand your word, because, Father, each of us in our own lives has come to see, in our own way, how an abiding knowledge of you and your word is transformative, how it moves us, how it changes us, how it gives meaning to things that beforehand had no meaning, gives explanation to things like suffering and pain and the sin of this world, but even then it gives us hope, knowing, Father, that these things will pass away and new things will come. And it helps us understand our roles, Father, in marriage and in the family and in this world. It gives us direction. By your word, Father, you've called us into a faith that has changed everything about us and our future, what we look forward to. And, Father, we can know these things only because you have taught us through your Spirit. And you have made available a little church with a long-standing and loyal, faithful group of leaders and servants so that we too could wander in here on a given day and come to know these things. We thank you, Father, that you've blessed us in this way. But you didn't give us these things to hold on to them for our own sake, Father. We know that you have a bigger plan. You have a much wider audience than just us. And, Lord, you'll remind us of that again today in the text. As you spoke to a man, Ezekiel, years ago, you showed him and his people that your glory is your ultimate aim. And so, Father, we pray that this small church and in all that we are would become a church that glorifies you by who we are and how we take what we've been given and how we put it to work. Let us not be content, Father, to receive, but to give. To give in our time and our talent and our treasure to be people, Father, who seek to glorify your name among the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you had the challenge of explaining to someone who had been born blind what colors are. Imagine how hard that would be. How would you describe to that person what the color red is, what the color blue is? That person would have no point of reference, would they? They have no way to really understand the words you're using. I mean, they might know what you're saying. The words would be in, in their language, right? But that doesn't help them because what you're saying would probably make little or no sense to them. Try that sometime. Try explaining the color red. You can only do it in relationship to something else. Well, it's the color of an apple. I've never seen an apple. You know, you see you're stuck before you even get started. That thought came to my mind because I think that's the kind of problem Ezekiel had in chapter 1, when he was called by God to relate the vision that we have recorded in this chapter. Because he saw things that literally no one sees. We might as well be blind when it comes to the things that he's describing. They're things that just don't make sense to someone who's bound to the earth. He tried to describe his vision using simple language. It's like this. It's like that. But even then, as you look at the overall description that we're going to study this morning, it may come off sounding a bit nonsensical at times to us. Some have even accused Ezekiel of being psychotic. I'm not saying that facetiously. I mean, if you look at some of the commentaries, there's people who actually question his sanity. There's others who say he was on LSD. One of our elders said that this week. 
He said it jokingly, but others have said it seriously. But friends, we also know that this scene is recorded in Scripture because God wanted to communicate something to Israel and ultimately to us, which tells you something. It means that despite the otherworldly nature of these events, they are understandable by the Spirit, right? They're not meant to be unapproachable. You can, in fact, know what the Lord was trying to teach to Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, by these visions, even if some of the details remain mysterious in some cases. So those two things are not incongruent. You can be mystified by some of the details and yet see the big picture. Do you understand? That's possible. By the way, you can say the same thing for all Scripture. God has the power to make Himself known to us in His Word, irrespective of your own abilities or your own efforts to understand it. Let me illustrate what I mean. God has the power to make His will known. And the example comes from missionary work. There was a missionary by the name of Alexander McKay. He was a Scottish missionary to Uganda in the 19th century, mid-1800s. His story starts with another missionary, a man by the name of David Livingston. He was an Englishman who went into the heart of Africa as an evangelist in the mid-1800s. And then after a few years of him working in the middle of Africa, everyone in London was kind of curious what had happened to Livingston. So a newspaper sent a reporter to the middle of Africa to find Livingston and find out what was going on. And when this reporter, a guy named Stanley, came upon Livingston, he uttered those famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume. So Stanley, when he saw Livingston's work in the middle of Africa, he was so moved by what Livingston was doing that Stanley, the reporter, became a missionary to this same area, to Uganda. And then in April of 1875, Henry Stanley, the reporter, he wrote a letter that was destined to go back to London appealing for more workers to come share in this work. And he gave this letter to a French colonel who was leaving Africa. And by caravan to the coast... The Frenchman took the letter, but on the way to the coast, he was attacked by savage natives and killed, and his body left unburied on the sands of the coast of Africa. And then a bunch of English soldiers just happened to be going by. They found the French colonel dead, decided they'd bury him. And as they're taking his boots off to bury him, they find the letter that Stanley wrote in the blood-stained boots of this colonel. They see the letter, they decide to send it back to London. They send it by way of an English general through Egypt. Eventually, he sends it to London. Eventually, it gets published in the London newspaper six months after Stanley wrote it. And it was Alexander McKay who read that letter in the newspaper, and it moved him to know he was called by God to go to Uganda, which is what he did. Who could have written that story and it made it believable, right? The point is this. God's message will find its way to its intended destination, one way or another, because that's the power of God in moving among men and women. So as we dive back into Ezekiel's first vision, I want you to be prepared for the likelihood that you may not understand every detail, even as I try my best to explain it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have confidence that you can come away with the understanding God intends. He's powerful enough to bring an understanding to you, even apart from the language even apart from our individual understanding. So last week we stopped in verse 4. And what we learned up to verse 4 concerning this vision is that God is communicating that He has brought judgment against Judah by the hands of the Babylonians as a result of their sins under the Old Covenant. And He promised that He would do this through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, centuries earlier. And now He's keeping His word. And that cloud... The cloud that Ezekiel sees coming from the north represents God's glory moving in keeping with his promises, reminding them that you are here for reasons of my glory, 
according to my promises, because I'm a covenant-keeping God. So let's pick up from there. I'll reread verse 4, and then we'll move through a large section. Verse 4, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form, each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, and a face of the bull on the left, and all four had a face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. We'll stop there for a minute. And I think perhaps now you feel a little bit like that blind person as someone tries to explain colors to them, right? Because it's hard to wrap your mind around what Ezekiel is describing. Now we know the cloud pictures the glory of God. And so we come now to see four figures emerging from the center of this storm, from the place of light, which would tell us that they are stationed at the heart of God's glory. We're going to consider their description in detail here because I want you to have a clear picture of this scene in your mind. And let's start with these four creatures. From the description of these creatures, they sound a little bit like aliens, don't they? Or some monster from a sci-fi movie. They're said to be living beings. That means they were created by God. That means they were given life. And they're told to have a human form or likeness, so that's the point of reference for beginning to understand their appearance. They're they're like human beings in some ways, but very quickly you, you begin to see they're very unlike human beings in other ways. And key among those differences is they each have four faces and four wings. Now that's clearly not human. These faces, there's a face of a man... And then there's the face of a lion, a face of a bull, and a face of an eagle. And there's been a long history of interpreters trying to explain the meaning of these particular four choices. Why did God put these four on these beings? But I find that usually that interpretation is little more than just speculation. It's not grounded in anything. It's just imagination. I'm going to offer an interpretation myself, but let's finish building our picture of these guys, their appearances first. Moving on, their legs, Ezekiel says, were straight. The Hebrew word translated straight, there's literally the Hebrew word for right. But that word can also be translated upright. So Ezekiel is saying these four creatures were standing erect on two legs. Those legs would then be those of a man, and they had feet at the end that were like a calf's hoof. And the legs themselves were shining bronze. Now burnished bronze is always a picture of withstanding God's judgment, being judged but coming out of it successfully. And so this suggests these creatures have been tested in a judgment fire. They are pure. They are holy. Moving on, you have wings, four wings. Under each of these wings, there's a hand. They have two wings raised high up above their head, and they have two wings that come down over their bodies, a sign of modesty, of humility. The upper ones are interesting. They've been positioned a certain way, and I'm going to have to depict this a little bit so that you have the right idea in your mind. So you have a creature with a wing up like this, two wings up. And the tips, Ezekiel says, of these wings are touching the tips of the wings of the one next to it. But if you do that with four, what kind of orientation do you have? It's a square. So the one, whichever one you pick, a creature has his right wing touching the left wing of this one, and then this one, and then this one, and there's four of them 
stationed back to back, which means they are all facing a cardinal direction. And they are adjoined then by their tips so that they have to move as a single unit. They have to go together wherever they go. And then again, the lower wings cover their body in an act of humility, given that they're standing in the presence of the glory of God. They're showing humility. The faces, furthermore, are fixed. Now, the language in the Hebrew is a little confusing. Let me explain this. He says the faces go straight. And what he means is each of those faces is planted on a single head, on a single neck. But the human face is the first, meaning it's the one that faces outward. It's the primary face. It's the primary identity. But then he says, the other faces are fixed in the cardinal directions around it. You notice he says the lion and the bull were on the right and on the left. That would mean that as you look at the creature, those faces are on the sides. He didn't say where the eagle face is, but by process of elimination, it can only be in the back. So the human face is facing outward. The other two are on the sides, eagle in the back. Now, since they are all standing in opposing directions, back to back, that would mean that anyone looking on this group from any angle can see all four faces collectively. Not on one of them, but I can see all four of these faces because I can see from every angle somebody's dull face, somebody's eagle. And then he says the faces don't turn in verse 9. That is, they look straight ahead without turning as the creature moves, as he follows the Spirit of God without deviating. That means the human face always looks outward, the eagle face always looks backward, and so on. They never have to turn their head at the neck. Now let's try to understand what we're learning. It seems that each of these faces would represent the highest creature among the major divisions of the animal kingdom that God established in Genesis. Think about it for a moment. You remember in Genesis, when God's creating... There are divisions that he describes. Man is the greatest of all living things God makes, as Scripture makes clear. Man is the greatest creature on earth. And so the face of the man is the first position on the creature. And then, as you heard, he has a general appearance of a man. So the overall dominant view of this creature is that of a man, though obviously with differences. Then you look at the other faces, and they represent the greatest among the animal kingdom within the major divisions. For example, God created land animals as beasts and cattle. Well, beasts are wild animals. Cattle means domesticated animals. And within Israel, the lion is the king of the beasts, and the bull is the king of the domesticated animals. And eagles are considered the king among the birds. Now, you and I might suggest other choices, like an elephant is a bigger beast than an ox, or so on. But we're talking about what Israel knew within their land, within their experience. And these four creatures represent the height of what Israel knew around them in their land. So what do they represent? Why are they in this vision? What are we learning by their description? Well, it may surprise you to know that these four creatures are actually common characters in the Bible. They're mentioned 91 times in the Old Testament, and once in the New Testament. Ezekiel himself names them later in his book, in chapter 10. This is what he says in chapter 10, verse 20. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Kebar, so I know that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, each one four wings, and beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As for the likenesses of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Kebar. They're cherubim. These four creatures are cherubim. Now cherubim are part of the angelic realm. We use the word angel very loosely. 
right? There's angels, there's angels. But the Bible uses the term far more specifically. Altogether, there are three classes of angels described in the Bible. First, the lowest rank is that of simply angels. The Bible always portrays angels the same way. And I bet if I asked you to pass a test on this, many of you would fail this test. How does an angel appear in Scripture? What are the features of an angel? They are always adult men, never women, never babies, and they do not have strange features. They do not even have wings. Angels have no wings. They are human-like, so human-like that they are often mistaken for regular people when they make appearances before them. The Bible says that angels were created as ministering spirits sent to the elect. They exist to serve us in one way or another. We'll probably get a much better understanding of how they are doing that once we get there. Today, their work is behind the scenes spiritually. They're invisible. We don't know how they're being used by God. But you ever had moments where you felt like you don't know how you got through that situation? It might be that God used an angel to help you through that moment. We don't know. That's the first, the lowest rank of angels. I'm calling them all angels, but the lowest rank is called angel. The next rank of angelic being is called a seraphim. That's the second class. That group is mentioned least in the Bible. It's only mentioned in two places, Isaiah and in Revelation. They have a single face, but that face is different from one seraphim to the next. It can be a face of a man. It can be a face of a bull. It can be a face of a lion. Or it can be a face of an eagle. But only one of them on a seraphim. And a seraphim has six wings, not four. They're covered on all sides by eyes. Their job, as we can understand it from Isaiah and Revelation, they serve God around the throne, continually praising Him. They pronounce judgments. They lead worship. And they attend to the altar of sacrifice in heaven. All right, then lastly, the highest order is cherubim. As you've seen, they resemble seraphim in some ways, but they're distinct in others. Four faces, not one. Four wings, not six. They too operate around the throne, but they have a different role. And here's where we begin to understand why they're in this vision. Their role is to guard the glory of God. In fact, the word cherubim comes from a Hebrew root word, which means to guard They are guardians of God's glory. And you can see that reflected in numerous ways in the Bible. If you remember from Genesis, the cherubim guarded the way into the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from finding their way back after they were barred from the tree of life. God guarded the way with cherubim. What is that reminding us of? That God's glory cannot coexist with sinful flesh. That God's glory cannot have Adam and woman return. Golden cherubim guarded the mercy seat in the tabernacle. Those are the two angels that have their wings over the mercy seat. Those are cherubim. They were embroidered also on the curtains that lead into the holy place of the tabernacle. They're seen in various places around the throne of God in various Old Testament texts. But Ezekiel gives us the most detailed description of his appearance and of the role. And it includes this description here. Later in this book, he's going to highlight, Ezekiel's going to highlight the story of one particular infamous cherub. You know the one I'm talking about? This is a a cherub who is the most powerful, the most beautiful of all God's creation, the highest of the highest. He had this important position in heaven, and he let that important position go to his head, and because of his pride, he fell into sin thinking he could become God. If you want to know what Satan looks like, you just read a description of him in Ezekiel chapter 1. So God shows Ezekiel this vision of his glory, bringing judgment for Israel, and in the midst of this vision, the most prominent detail so far is cherubim 
guarding the glory of God. And now Ezekiel describes how these creatures serve in that respect. Verse 12. Each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go, without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, and the lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings, one for each four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling burl, and all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of the four directions without turning as they moved. As for the rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them, and whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the Spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And wherever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the Spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Yep, LSD. That's what people think right about now. It's like he's having a bad trip, right? This is becoming harder and harder to make sense of, or so it sounds, right? Beginning here, he says, The cherubim move. They're not stationary. They move as fast as lightning, and they do so by means of these special wheels. In verse 15, Ezekiel says, There was one wheel under each cherub for a total of four wheels, upon which this whole group of cherubim would move. The wheels are made of burl. That's topaz in our way of saying it. That's a bluish-yellow crystalline stone. So it's brilliant. And in verse 18, he says they are lofty and awesome. But in the original Hebrew, those words mean exceedingly high and terrifying. So if you've been imagining like little wagon wheels, you need to make these wheels a lot bigger in your mind. All right? From the perspective of Ezekiel, he's looking up at them. All right? They're huge. Furthermore, each wheel is actually made of two wheels. He says, as if one wheel was inside the other. And the way to understand this is the wheels are set perpendicular to one another, like this. Inside, if you've ever seen a gyroscope, imagine that. That's probably the closest we'll get to understanding what this looks like. But when you look at how they move, it starts to make sense. This assembly allows the cherubim to move in any of the cardinal directions effortlessly without turning. So neither of the wheels actually turns, nor do the faces or the bodies of the cherubim turn. So they move to any place without diverting their attention. They could go as fast as lightning. They could even go straight up, it says, because the wheels would just go up with them. Finally, he says the wheels are full of eyes. And their spirit is in the wheels. They have the spirit. When the Bible describes something as full of eyes, it means it cooperates with the omnipresence and omniscience of God. It is in sync with the omnipresence and the omniscience of God. That should beg a question. How can anything that's created share in something that is uniquely of God? How can you be omnipresent? You can't. How can you be omniscient? You can't. And yet, these things with their eyes, etc., that communicates to us that they go where God goes, they know what God knows. How is it possible for any created thing to have that ability? Well, Ezekiel says they do so by means of the Spirit. By means of the Spirit of God, in other words. They know and they follow the will of God perfectly because they are led by the Spirit of God whose mechanism for moving them are these wheels. 
Interesting, isn't it? So the cherubim rely on these special wheels to accompany the glory of God as the glory of God moves about within his creation. And so the wheels are transporting the cherubim in perfect harmony with God in keeping with his omnipresence and his omniscience. So they are created, but because they are under the control of the Spirit, and the Spirit has perfect knowledge of God's will at all times, that means the cherubim never divert their attention away from God. The Spirit always ensures they're in the right place instantly so that God is never without their guarding presence. It's as if the Spirit is the navigator for these creatures, ensuring that they're always in perfect sync with the glory of God. And between them you find this coal fire with lightning again that pictures the glory of God. So you see these creatures guarding the glory of God perfectly in harmony with God, never out of step with Him. Speaking of the glory of God, Ezekiel finishes his chapter with a description of the glory of God as it relates to these, and that will help us pull all of this together. Verse 22. Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now, above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Next week we'll deal with what was said, but... We're still looking at the appearance right now. He sees this manifestation, and he says there at the very end, it was a likeness of the glory of God, seated on the throne above a crystal expanse. This idea of an expanse, it's another common theme in the Old Testament and into the New. This is the way God has come to represent His place in the heavenly realm. But we know this is not an actual image of God the Father. It's not actually Him. It's a way he represents himself within the creation. And we know this because Scripture says it's not possible to witness God the Father. 1 Timothy 6.15, Paul says, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So despite the fact that no man has seen or can see God on his throne, nevertheless, he will manifest his glory in this way from time to time in a representative way. He represents his glory as brilliant light, gemstones, rainbows, fire. These are elements of the created world that mean something to us. It's like, again, trying to explain colors to someone. I say it's like an apple. I've seen an apple, so I know what you're talking about. Well, that's how God is using these things as well. Isaiah and the Apostle John, for example, saw him in these ways also. According to the New Testament, though, when you see God represent himself through these things, you're always seeing the manifestation of the second person 
of the Godhead. It's always Christ who is taking the job of representing the Father to us through these manifestations. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And in Colossians 1.15, Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So whenever you see a physical manifestation of God's glory, you're seeing Christ at work, representing the Father through some physical means. And so you have him, the Father, represented by Christ, seated on the throne, on this fantastic expanse of color and brilliant light and so on, fire. But underneath it, notice, underneath it, what's supporting it? What's upholding this whole expanse of crystal? Scripture says that the cherubim are underneath it. In fact, in Psalms 99.1, you read this, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. So they are guardians of God's glory. They move everywhere He goes in perfect harmony with the Spirit. And it's their mission to uphold the glory of God. That's what you see now described in this entire scene. And it's that last detail that gives us the understanding of what the Lord is trying to communicate through this vision to Ezekiel. That the Lord manifests Himself with cherubim holding Him up. Ask yourself this, is God's glory ever in jeopardy? Does it need protecting Can anything threaten or diminish God's glory? Anything in His creation? Does God need four-winged creatures to keep Himself from being dishonored? No, I mean, not in the sense that anything can literally diminish, take away anything of His. Now, it is possible for someone or something in creation to deny His glory or to blaspheme Him. I mean, Satan did it first. Sinful human beings have done it ever since. But that's not the same thing as saying His glory is at risk. In the ultimate sense, it's just being unappreciated. So that begs this huge question. Why does God need cherubim to follow him around and uphold his glory? That should be the first thing someone who watches this scene would ask. Why must they accompany him? The answer is this. The cherubim serve our needs in the same way that the other angelic beings do. They just have a very specific role. They are examples to mankind for how God is to be glorified. Well, what do we learn from their example? Remember, we said already they guarded the entrance to Eden. Well, they did that so that men would understand that sin separates us from the glory of God. And they decorated the curtain guarding the entrance to the holy place so Israel would understand you cannot access God's glory in your current state. It needs to be guarded from you. And they guarded the glory of God over the mercy seat because they wanted you to understand how important God's glory was to him that even at its place in the holy of holies, he has guards right over it. How important is God's glory to him? The cherubim, you could say, are poster children for how you and I should think and relate to God's glory. The creation and all that it contains was made to reflect glory on God. And while the cherubim have a very unique role in regard to doing that, we are all called to do that, to emulate their example. So Israel, among all the nations, was specifically called by God to glorify Him among the other nations. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, He says this to Israel, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were in more number than any other people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, and brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
So here's lesson number one for Israel. Lesson number one for Israel is, I made you so you would guard my glory among the nations. They guard it literally. You do it in other ways. You exist to glorify Him. Jesus said we glorify our Father in heaven first through an obedient life. He says in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. First Peter says in 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, which is a way of saying among the unbelieving. He says do that so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, that they may, because of your good deeds, observe them, glorifying God in the day of visitation. Moreover, the cherubim teaches that the guarding of God's glory depends on living in harmony with the Spirit of God. They never could divert. They never got distracted. They never looked away from God. They never stopped in their appointed service to God. They followed Him everywhere, perfectly, under the direction of the Spirit. They knew perfectly His will. They moved with lightning speed. They didn't even delay. They never wait. They never miss a beat. They never turn away. Their attention never diverts. That's how you guard the glory of God. That's what obedience really means. Imagine, friends, the glory you and I would bring to the Lord if our every thought and every action was perfectly in tune with the Spirit of God. We call that sinlessness. I know it's not possible. But if you remain fixed on the Lord, then whenever the Spirit turned, you'd go right with Him. You'd be like riding on those wheels. If you could move with the speed of lightning, you'd never be a beat behind Him. If your lives were consumed with concern for obedience, for the glory of God, you would be upholding the glory of God among the people who know you. And if you were humble enough to do it, you'd be covering yourself in the process. Obviously, we're not cherubim. We can't do what they do, at least not to the degree they do it. But we're supposed to make our goal to be living in that way. And that was the goal God put before the nation of Israel. God called them to be concerned with His glory and to glorify Him among the nations. And what did they do? They traded that mission for one of worshiping false gods, enslaved to selfish pursuits, living like the pagan world. They flip the script. And in the process, they bring shame on God's name, which is why they now find themselves sitting in Babylon. And that's the message God wanted them to know. They're there because He put them there, but they're there because they did not uphold the glory of God. The more you understand the importance of the glory of God, the more likely you will be to guard it in your own life. Conversely, if you give little or no thought to the glory of God, then I imagine your walk as a Christian will inevitably drift away from God's priorities. And the very fact that so many rabbis in Ezekiel's day and in the years hence in Israel, the fact that so many of them have rejected his vision as mere fantasy, that tells you they missed the point. It's proof of how little appreciation they had for the glory of God. Which is why the Lord appeared to Israel in this way, so that they might begin to appreciate the glory of the God who called them into covenant. I think, unfortunately, many theologians in the church have likewise rejected Ezekiel's vision. You can read commentaries until you're blue in the face, and many, many of them either dismiss what he's saying or over-spiritualize it, or as I've said, they go so far as to say he was psychotic. I've even read some that say cherubim don't exist. In other words, these are not actual creatures, they're entirely metaphoric. It may explain why so many in the church have moved so far away from a God-fearing life 
dedicated to obedience for the glory of God. We just don't understand, we don't appreciate the importance of the glory of God, much less how we are to guard it. A.W. Tozer made the following observation. He said this, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping people. She has not done so deliberately, but little by little without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of divine presence. We've lost our spirit of worship. We've lost our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence or prayer. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life of the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to a self-confident, bustling worshiper in the middle period of the 20th century. The loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the church is all more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses are wholly internal. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives... We must begin to think of God more nearly as He is. Is your conduct before unbelievers directed by a conscious awareness of the glory of God being upheld? Is your attitude and behavior in the worship service, in the music or in the study of God's Word, are you concerning yourself with your behavior in light of the glory of God as if you were in His presence in His full glory? I assure you, if He showed up and gave you a vision like He did Ezekiel, you'd probably react to worship differently. Why are you waiting for that? Your dedication to the body of Christ, your prayer life, your giving life, just reverence for God in all aspects of your daily life. If those things are wanting, lacking, superficial, if that's how you can see yourself, if you know yourself in that way, consider that perhaps understanding the glory of God as it truly exists outside your physical awareness right now. Maybe that appreciation is what's lacking. Because one day, friends, we will be there. And, of course, in that moment, we'll understand things in a better way and we'll respond in the right way. But we don't have to wait for that moment, in other words. We don't have to wait till we get there. As we go deeper into this lesson uh, next week, of course, we'll start to hear what God has to say in this vision. But even now, Consider the effort he went to to show one man, and through him the people of Israel, his glory, upheld by creatures who perfectly suit him in that regard, as our examples. Let's be a little bit more like cherubim if we can this week and in weeks to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray, asking your forgiveness. I uh, suspect I'm not the only one, Father, so I pray on behalf of the fellowship that you forgive us for having such a low view of your glory at times, thinking of you in simple ways, thinking of our relationship to you in selfish ways. I pray, Father, you would forgive that and give us a new and better understanding of you, one that will 
cause us, drive us to uphold your glory. To not trade your glory for something temporal, something selfish and meaningless. Not to give in to our base desires because we forget, Father, what your glory requires. But I pray, Father, that uh, Ezekiel's vision could be useful to our hearts in driving us to a different way of thinking, a different life for your sake and for our own, Father. Help us think about your glory, Father, more this week. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.